Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast. This week, we have a great interview for you with Tennyson Wolf, the author of A Cadence of Despair, Poems and Reflections on Heartbreak, Loss, and Renewal. And this interview was conducted by our very own Casey. It's a wonderful conversation, and I want to get to it as soon as we possibly can. But before that, I just want to let you know that if you'd like to learn more about Tennyson Wolf's work or his book, it'll all be in the show notes at irenicast.com slash 174. That's irenicast.com slash 174. You'll find all the ways you can connect with the show and also including how you can support the work that we do here at Irenicast. That's irenicast.com slash 174. And while you're there, you can check out all the other things that we have on the website, including past episodes and all the different ways to subscribe, depending upon the platform that you listen to podcasts on. So without any further ado, here is this week's interview with Tennyson Wolf. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Casey, and uh, on the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, I am riding solo. Well, not necessarily solo. Uh, I am here with my good friend, Tennyson Wolf, who is an author, a brilliant thinker. Let me just share with you a little bit about who he is. He's a consultant, a facilitator, a workshop leader, coach, teacher, writer, and my friend. Um, he is committed to improving the quality of collaboration and imagination needed in groups, teams, communities, and organizations to help us be in times such as these with consciousness, kindness, and learning. We all definitely need that. His work has been, I would say, successful. He may disagree for 20 plus years, and he has designed and led meetings are in a variety of formats, from strategic visioning with boards to large conference designs to just being in community and listening to one another. Tennyson, uh, thank you for joining me today. I'm super, super glad to join you, Casey. So one of the things that you asked me that I would like to start by asking you is, you know, what is it like to be you, Tennyson? Who are you? Uh, and followed by, um, what has your attention? And then again, uh, what has that got to do with you? Oh, boy. Okay, well, I'll follow the crossover then. Thanks for the questions. You know, Casey, uh, who I am in this moment, in this, you know, this this minute of time, this five minutes of time is someone who's uh, like, like glad to be in contact with you. I'm glad that we have a friendship. Uh, you named a few things in the introduction of both me and your podcast and some of what you're about that are, that are immediate flags. Uh, in some way, I'm, you know, a squirrel chaser because things get my attention in the moment and I feel like, ooh, 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 let's stay there. Let's yeah. play with that. So you mentioned some things. Uh, theology is one of them. I am not of a particular religious tradition, and yet I find myself hanging out and being with uh, many people who are pastors and part of faith communities and faith traditions. And there's something about that that I love. I love being able to be in uh, and I'm going to relanguage it just a little bit, a world where there's attention to the things not only seen but unseen, because I, I like that kind of stuff. I, you know, I'm the kind of person that feels like there's always more going on there's, than we see. 
there's always more unseen than there is seen. A, a mutual friend that you and I have referenced before, my, my colleague and uh, good friend, Quinita, we just did a piece of little podcast on the difference between being a human being having a spiritual experience and a spiritual being having a human experience mm, and sort yeah. of playing with the difference in that orientation. You mentioned in some of the introductory words there, again, you know, something about creating cultures or cultures of creativity. That's one thing that I relate to. Cultures of honesty, cultures of just trying to be good humans with one another. Uh, there's something about imagination. Yeah, there's something about progressive also. I know that you're, that's, that's part of your, your desire with uh, you know, what you create in your life and a little bit through this podcast also. I, I think there's just oodles of stuff for us to explore and, as human beings and as human communities. And I'm going to stretch it beyond human communities also. You know, it's not just a human world here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, there's so many easy places to land in and all of that. So all, all of the things that you read are or shared or spoke a little bit about me are all, all relevant touchstones. I do consulting. I, most of my work is community engagement stuff. Uh, I'm a group process person. I do some pretty serious stuff with people and I, I do some of the fluffy stuff also like, uh, uh, just, or the seemingly fluffy. I'm going to rename it that way. It looks like it's fluffy, but there's some, damn straight purpose going on there totally so what's it like to be me uh yeah you know i'm a human being that is here we are living in coronavirus times and uh i'm a person who feels the sorrow i feel angst i feel grief pain suffering and all of that there's something that i also like about the reworking of who we are as human beings like the can't help but question a bit more perhaps some of who we are and who we are together and how we are and how we are together. So I I have all of those things attentively in me. I know that one of our connection points here has been my, my book, A Cadence of Despair, Poems and Reflections on Heartbreak, Loss and Renewal. That's a recent publication for me and there's something in the artistry of being able to work with words or images or dreams recalled or stories shared uh, that somehow feels very alive to me. Like, I, you know, there's so much more than just conveying data with one another, how any of us get to uh, sort of the more deeply embedded, you know, human experience with one another. I, I've, I've always been the kind of person that's just like super interested in all of that. And it feels super useful. It totally does. You know, well, that was kind of blathery sort of stuff, no, but it, no, uh, it's it played good. a little bit into the questions. Yeah, it's good. And and we are certainly going to talk about your book, um, which is uh, remarkable, by the way, just remarkable. I, again, as I was sharing earlier, uh, I was rereading through some of it this morning, sitting on my back deck and, and I just thought to myself, who is this guy? Like, I feel so honored that he is my friend. 
because I, I resonate with so much of what you share in your book. But I just have a few questions for you, Tennyson. Um, first of all, you said at one point, uh, you know, um, that you sort of you hang out with these theology types, these religious types, but um, you said, uh, but but you live outside of that. You know, that's not that's not where you live. And I think there are, for a lot of our listeners, they sort of feel like they are living on the periphery, you know, whether they've walked away by choice or they've been thrown out. <laughs> um, and I think for many of us, we we still feel that way, that we live on the periphery of of that community. And so and then you said later something like um you you're trying to make connections as to what is going on. You know, you talked about what you uh, you and Quanita had this uh, recent conversation about: Are we humans having a spiritual experience? Or are we spiritual beings having a human experience? Um, in the in the midst of COVID, in the midst of living on the periphery of these theological conversations, how do you piece all of this together? What the hell is going on, Tennyson? <laughs> I don't know if I can piece all of that together, but I might be able to sort of, you know, you know how, like, if you ever do a puzzle on a table, you don't just do it all at once. You sort of start with little corners and totally, yeah, or start with the edges, you know, so that you can begin to explore the middle. Uh, I'll speak a little bit about the, yeah, I'm letting myself think out loud a little bit here, Casey, in a religious sense. I didn't grow up in a religious tradition. Uh, we were not churchgoers. I think my parents sent my sis- older sister and I off to to church a couple of times, but I really don't have memories of of uh, like going as a family. We, we weren't that kind of family. I grew up in a very loving family and group of people. And at one point along the way, I realized that I was describing the family that I came up, that I grew up in from a religious side by saying it was a religion of there's always room for one more at the table. Beautiful. We, we were not churchgoers, you know, but there was a kindness or a, a welcome. And I really think of my grandparents that way, who, who lived through depression era times uh, financial depression and, and, you know, just sort of the thirties and forties and 1930s and 1940s. And they were, they were just people who, who like many of their time, just you helped each other. You helped, you helped your neighbor, you know, you, you did what you could to try to help out. That's really the context that I grew up in. Along the way, I did go into a faith tradition and and uh, went fully in and learned a little bit about what it was like to be inside of an institution with, of course, really good people and, you know, good intentions and all of that. And it sounds way too summarizing right now or too quick to summarize it this way, but uh, I realize there's a part of me that's sort of institutionally itchy <laughs> yeah. when it came to religion. And right. it's like, I, I think I came in loving the mystery and, you know, loving the mysticism of it and, and loving the unknown of it. And when that got replaced with answers, not questions, resolutions, not mystery, something in me just felt way too squished. Yes, And so eventually I had to sort of find my way out of that also. 
but I, I live with gratitude for both being in as well as coming out. Back to some of your framing there, I, I think there's a lot of us, not just with religious institutions, but perhaps even more broadly, re-examining who we are when it comes to institutional boundaries or re-questioning some of the, you know, the premises of what, what are we trying to do within organizations or communities or things? And many of us are finding ourselves on the outside. So that's not speaking directly to coronavirus kind of stuff right now. But there's something in that story, in, in that storyline, I think, Casey, around uh, coming to question who we really are and who we want to be with one another. And maybe even like saying, challenging some really age-old, unchallenged things with one another, that that all feels like compelling and healthy to me. Right. And I think that some of that has come uh, with being stuck at, at home, right? I mean, uh, I have been telling people a lot that if, if, if you are not ready to look at yourself, being stuck at home is not not for you. <laughs> Right. You might, you might get a little antsy. Um, because I know in my own life and in the people around me who I love, it has really awakened things in them, you know, whether that be the lack of creativity they were having before coronavirus, right? Where all of a sudden they're picking up hobbies that they had, they had once let go of because they had, they were too busy, you know? I mean, every day I feel like I'm on, damn Facebook and someone is baking something delicious, right? Because they have found the time to work with their hands, to garden, to cook, to be in relationship with their families. Um, but also, again, um, it has allowed us the opportunity to reimagine what life could look like after this. And I think there is an invitation. Um, I mean, I even hear it in my own work. We now get to see what meetings could have been done by email or virtual. You know, like we don't have to always meet in person. We don't have to always do the things uh, that we've done just because we've done them that way. I agree with you, Tennyson. I think that um, this time has invited us to reimagine to reimagine what our lives can look like, to reimagine what our relationships could look like our institutions, all of it. You know, it, isn't it interesting, Casey, uh, to all of the like, what are you baking lately kinds of hobbies and things that are coming out? That's awesome. To me, that's wonderful. Uh, for me, some of that has been like, I have a guitar and I'm a guitar hobbyist. You know, I, right. I, I, it's accurate, not really to say I'm a guitar <laughs> player, but boy, I sure love playing. I love making noises and sounds. I'm doing a lot more of that than I was, say, two months ago or right. two years ago. So, you know, for any of that kind of stuff, if, if we're discovering and letting ourselves follow a little bit of what we love, whew, you know, having the permission for that, that feels healthy. And I, I want to name another side of that, though, too. I think that in the sorrow of coronavirus or of a pandemic, let's say, you know, there's also some, there's some letting go going on. Like I once did this, but boy, I'm not going to keep doing that. That's You're right. describing some of that even in meeting culture, let's say. But I, I think one of the other things that that's really coming is there has been a, 
a requirement. Does everybody do this? No, but you know, I'm, I'm encouraged by the increased level of this, let's say. That's really had to take on some tough stuff. Like when you start to face your own mortality in another way, there can be something really uh, difficult, but also liberating in that also. So the fact that any of us have come to, you know, an added relationship with our own mortality or our own relationship to illness, our own relationship to fear. What if I get this virus? What if people I love get sick, die? You know, we, I, I think we've really had to come to terms with fear in a different way. And that isn't sort of like party material, but boy, it's sure good consciousness material. Indeed. You know, I, as you're talking, I'm even thinking about the people who, who are still in religious contexts who are, who have thought about leaving, who have been too afraid to leave because, you know, if they're not there on Sunday morning, someone will notice. And this, this gives them the opportunity, you know, to sort of let go, um, in a, in a very subtle way. And I think that there are a lot of people that are going to look at some of the things that they were doing, like you said, before coronavirus and say, this doesn't feed me anymore. This wasn't feeding me before the virus, but it certainly isn't feeding me now. It's it's a gut check, isn't it? It totally is. Yeah. And I just imagine in, in, in you know, faith communities, yes. And in lots of other communities also, That's right. it's going to be a whole like, layer of you know i i'm not coming back it's become clear to me and that's not to say you know abandon uh where you've been or even just abandon some things that are difficult because all communities come with difficulty and struggle and you know i think i think those are some of the things that we need to work out but boy to revisit a little of you know, what do, I, what do I really care about and what can I commit or what am I or, or what what adds life by my commitment? I, I think I think a lot of us are in those flavors of questions. Yeah, I would agree. Thank you for that. So, everyone, that was just the introduction to Tennyson Wolf. <laughs> uh, we have we haven't even begun to talk about the book. Um, but if you just hear this man speak, you um, you can hear what what a gem he is. And um, so, again, Tennyson, thank you for being with us. And I, I, you know, you wrote this book, A Cadence of Despair: Poems and Reflections on Heartbreak, Loss, and Renewal. What led you to write this book? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. I I am just going to tag a little bit there, too, from what you just spoke, because, Casey, you have a way of sort of welcoming deeper presence in people. I know that personally with you, and I've seen some of that also with a few other people. But thanks for all of the, you know, the appreciations for depth of speaking and all of that. You have a way of calling that out in people too. So I just want to name that. As it pertains to this book, I'm going to let myself go back in time a little bit. I am a regular uh, journaling person. Most of my journaling comes in the form of uh, typing on my laptop in the mornings Uh, some of it comes in the form of an actual, you know, 
notebook that I have where I'm going to scribble and write with pens. Uh, but I'm a regular journaler, and that goes back over the last 10 years in a pretty, oh, three to five times a week kind of way. It's it's mostly like, you know, I need to get some of that stuff from the inside out into a form. It, that That's mostly just for me. It's It's, you know, journals that are written and then shoved away in a closet or stored on a hard drive somewhere and never revisited again. That's that's the more primary mode for me. But I think journaling has created a, a kind of thoughtfulness in me. I, uh, you know, as a, I have a strong enough introvert in me that needs to have a few mediums to try and explore something a little more externally, or at least bridging the internal and the external. Um, so there's regular jour- journaling going on. Two years ago, I did something that I have not really done before. I, I went back into my journal from the previous year. Mm. 2018 was a pretty challenging year for me that included uh, the reality of a relationship that was coming to an end, a divorce, uh, and, and so much of the struggle that goes with that. It would be easy for me to say, it would be easy but inaccurate also for me to say, well, I was going through a divorce and all these things were happening. I actually think that the, the experience of a separation, of a, you know, a, a transformation of a relationship, an end of a relationship was calling out lots of stuff that was not really directly related to that, that relationship or that divorce. Old patterns, you know. So anyway, I'm revisiting my journal, doing this this thing that I really haven't done before. And I started writing poems from it. I would read through, uh, you know, a couple of days worth of journal writing. And something in me has always loved, like, getting to the essence of things. Yeah. And in especially in written word like that, I just... Like I would take a paragraph and turn it into a sentence and a half. I would take a page of unedited journal material and say, oh, this looks kind of cool if I put this here and break it here and, you know, add to it here. I just, I started writing in this sort of more prose style. And for me, I'm I'm one who likes to write something almost every day. Sometimes it's in the form of blog post, which goes out into the world. And sometimes it's just this journal material that's really for me. Uh, I started playing with prose forms around that journal. And I just followed like, you know, day to day through the year. I would not do this every day, by the way. I would just do it on weekends, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But I noticed I was writing poems. And I was feeling healthy about that. At that point in time, too, it was like, this this isn't for sharing with anybody. I wasn't thinking that at all. But after I'd done that for about three months and realized, I've got quite a few poems here. And I did share it with a friend of mine, a couple of friends, but a, a friend who also knows a fair amount about publishing and that kind of stuff. And uh, he really encouraged me to think of collecting these into a publication. So somewhere about three months deep into revisiting that old journal uh, and realizing there's some health and well-being in working these into poems, especially, 
I, I started to realize maybe these might have some value with other people also. And the title, I, I should go back to that. The title just came at one point, uh, A Cadence of Despair. I, I sort of like the energy of movement or steps, although that sounds a little more rigid sometimes than I feel it. Uh, and despair was a key thing because I felt like underneath many of those writings, I was daring to come into more of a relationship with despair, which I think more often than not prior to that, I was wanting to avoid. I was wanting to deny. Yeah, I think that's common for many of us, right? Um, despair is not somewhere we like to go, especially alone. <laughs> And so uh, I think that maybe, you know, I'm a four in the Enneagram, and uh, so I, I can I can sit with some of this because it's sort of my own inner work. You know, as I've said to you before, as I, as I read through your book, I resonate with so much of it. Not that we have had the same experiences, um, but I know the darkness. I think many of us know the darkness. Some of us have a tendency to turn away from it. Some of us have a tendency to, to turn towards it. You know, there's a lot that plays into how we navigate despair. Uh, you know, I would be interested, Tennyson, in just hearing you sort of talk about if you are someone who is prone to turn away, what was it like to be forced to deal with it? Tell me about the cadence. Tell me about the dance, Tennyson. Like, that's what I, I, I really want to hear some of that. Yeah, thanks for that, Casey. You know, I, I feel like I've been in friendship mostly with a number of really, really good people who are smart enough to encourage options beyond denial. Of <laughs> <Right>. the <laughs> sign of a good friend. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and friends who know enough about circumstance to, you know, gently guide or invite or sometimes push a little bit. Um, so I feel like I've had some good people. And I, when I say some good people, I'm going all the way back to my grandmothers, for that matter, in some way, without me knowing it as a younger boy. You know, I, I think they were encouraging emotional honesty, emotional intelligence, for that matter, uh, some of those things. Uh, but I definitely have a denial streak in me. When I was writing these poems, Casey, I... I wasn't thinking a book. Right. I was I was just writing yeah. because it's it's like I couldn't not write. And somewhere in that was finding, you know, movement or health or well-being or or some something in those directions. After I'd written enough, it it, it was a natural step actually for me to say, you know, I've got all these poems like I was just following a chronology from my journal and I thought there's another choice here and I started grouping them into categories literally you know printed out papers and was standing with a stack full of eventually about 300 papers 300 poems and saying okay what if I made some categories here and I literally stood at my kitchen counter with these papers and you know licking the thumb going through them and saying, well, that seems like this, this seems like this, this seems like this. And I, I just very intuitively grouped them into categories. Now, those categories eventually became chapters. 
And through the guidance of one of my writing teachers, which just was really, really helpful, she encouraged me to try to create a map or a trajectory. Now, the trajectory to me, it, it was really important not to go too quickly to a resolution. Yeah. You know, I was depressed. I was suicidal. I felt massive despair. And then everything was okay. You know, that's, that's a too, that's too simplified of a story. And I think like you were saying earlier here, we live in a, we live in a culture. Why do we get denial? Why do we get avoidance? Those things. Because in many ways, our culture is programmed for ascent. Yeah. We're programmed to go up and follow the light and, and those wonderful things. But what we miss, I think, is the gift of the descent the gift of, of, of like going down. And so anyway, in these chapters, I, I sort of started to feel them and then I grouped them in a little bit of a, of a map there. It started with pain and grief and shame, like grouping some of the poems that, excuse me, that was kind of the title. When I let myself look at this, you know, clump of papers, some of which of course didn't make it anywhere near the book. Uh, the first one, that group was pain and grief and shame. And then there was another stack of poems that were a, a little bit more about loss. And then from there, I had a pile that was on hints and insights. So after that descent of pain, grief and shame and loss, there's a, like a little pop up. Let's not resolve it all, but let's, let's peek up a little bit. Be in the learning that is, you know, what comes out of that struggle so it went into hints and insights, and then I had a chapter on on friendship, important friendships that were there. I had a chapter on poems to the boy and from the boy. This work of Those inner really good Those inner really child. Good. Thank you for that. It's uh, but you know coming into coming to terms with of all of us as as sort of deny things you know from our childhood, but to be able to return to them with our adult or more informed or caringness uh, is an important thing. The chapter six in this is about suicide. And I have most directly relationship with suicide in that my father committed suicide when I was 14. Uh, so, you know, that's a significant life experience. Yeah. And in some ways has just continued to live with me, not as a everyday thinking about my dad kind of thing, but I, I, you know, I, I think the, my own, my own desire for suicide, my own desire for departure has been a, a very real thing that again, I've had to come to terms with, with that chapter, then I sort of raise it up out of it again into uh, a chapter called the simple, uh, just, you know, little key essence insights that have been part of the journey. And then the last one on birth and new life. It is, it has been so important to follow the descent, not just the ascent. And boy, I've, I've been glad to have some friends who just, just know and get that. Yeah. Talk to me about, um, the descent, you know, what, what gifts does despair bring? Hmm. Yeah, what a good question. You know, because I think, you know, like you're saying, 
We're always looking for the ascent. We're always looking for it to get better. I mean, I think that that's one of the biggest uh, concerns I have with crazy Christians and their uh, their their lack of care for the world, their lack of care for, you know, putting damn masks on and staying home. It's because they are waiting for an ascent that will never come or a rescue. Or, uh, it, it can't get any worse than this, they think, right? So they're going to continue to live into their bad behavior and let the world go to shit because, you know, the ascent will eventually happen, um, which isn't real. We are missing the opportunity to learn in our despair. And so I'm wondering what despair has taught you. What are the gifts of despair? You know, I do agree with you that there's something important about about the descent. And I just, I would love to hear from you more about that. Yeah. Yeah. What a, I mean, what a good question, Casey. I, I think that part of it is like an added layer of honesty with ourselves. You know, I, I want to say that every human being has some layer of worry or fear or, and sometimes that's exaggerated and exaggerated. That's, that's amplified into stronger categories than what I'm naming right now. But if you're human, you have these things. And I think so many belief systems and structures in our society have been put in place, sometimes with deliberateness and sometimes just that's the way it is. That's right. the way it turned out. Because we all want to be such good people, you know. Right. We lose the gift of some realness. So maybe there's something about honesty. What's a gift of despair? There's something about needing to be honest with yourself yeah. or honest with others. Yeah. There's something about uh, needing to be vulnerable or vulnerability just being a natural, you know, natural quality. Uh, I, th I think there's just something about the honesty. And anytime that any of us find a bit more honesty of who we are, I think that welcomes the, our neighbors <laughs> to be a little bit more of who they are also. And, and that seems to just, that whatever that honesty is, or whatever that more than, more options than just denial and hiding are, that feels healthy to me. I mean, I, I work with an organizational principle around if you want a system to be healthy, connect it to more of itself. That applies to we as individual human beings also. Absolutely. Can we be in touch with, you know, the things that we fear? Uh, another friend of mine had said when I was sharing some of this with him and some other conversations, and he he, uh, he just reflected back to me. He said, often the most personal, the things that we think we need to keep most private are in, because we're the only ones, are in fact the most universal. And anytime we create that bridge from this seemingly, you know, must be private, personal into, oh, wait a minute, we, there's something much, much, much more shared here that's valuable. I think another layer of this, Casey, is uh, I like the initiatory language. And this has been become part of some of the programs that I'm a part of with Quinita also, Quinita Robertson. Uh, initiatory language 
simplified down into three stages. There's departure, there's ordeal, and then there's return. And it's often in uh, initiatory experience that like we grow as people and we grow as communities. We, you know, we dare to go to the underworld to come back with something that helps ourselves or our communities, uh, the people that we're with. And despair, being in relationship with despair, is it, it fits into that also. The departure might be moving away from the imposed belief that everything is just swell and instead daring to dwell in the depression, the anger, the fear, the hurt, the worry, the rage, uh, any of those kinds of emotions and dwell in them. Like don't, don't fix it too soon. You know, don't, don't pull out like, well, there's a birthday party going on and everybody's got to be happy and blow out candles. Like, like, just don't pop out of it. Stay in the challenge. Stay in the ordeal of things. And I, I think I'm a person, Casey, that's just always believed that, you know, if you can stay in stuff like that, there's, there's gifts that can totally. come. Added insight, added consciousness, added kindness, you know, added self-respect or love, which turns out, of course, enables love and respect with others also, or love and kindness with others. So I, I think that despair, despair is a hell of a teacher. Totally. But it, it takes a, boy, it takes an ability to go down, down to the floor. That's right. Literally, right? I mean, as you write in your book, literally down to the floor, into the closet, you know? I think there's a truth uh, that despair invites in us. Because there's no hiding. There's no more hiding. You you can't you can't go anywhere, you can't fix it immediately, you can't button right back up. It it turns out it takes energy to deny those things. You know, and I I mean I, I want part of the mystery in this for me, Casey, is it doesn't mean that all of us need to burp out every thought or emotion that we have. There are situationally relevant contexts or circumstances where you know, it, it's more helpful. But I think pushing the edges to more disclosure or more honesty is is just a massively important thing. It takes energy to hold it all in. Right. Especially, but I think it's important to acknowledge that we live in a culture that we are rewarded by talking about our successes. We are rewarded for how put together we actually are. Oh, yeah. And so what I think this book does, what I think you do as a, just as a person, as a friend, is you invite others to not have to show up that way. When you show up in front of Tennyson Wolf, you don't have to show up buttoned up. When you come to this book, you don't have to come with all the answers. You have to come ready to be real, to at least be able to relate to the experience of the floor and the closet. And if you're not ready to do that, it might be difficult, right? I think that that's important to to note. And I think it's also important for our listeners to understand that finding those thought partners, as Alan calls them, or those close friends that you can be vulnerable with, of course, you don't have to burp out uh, every pain and sorrow. But you should be able to have people in your life who can hold the space, who can who can sit in the darkness with you, and who are willing to reflect back 
to you what they hear and how how loved you are, but also are able to be vulnerable with you. You know, I think of Brene Brown. I love Brene Brown. And um and her in her book, The Gift of Vulnerability, she starts with, you know, vulnerability evokes vulnerability, as you were saying earlier, Tennyson. Like when you are willing to go to that truthful place, it allows for other people to do the same. We long for it. It, like you said, takes more work for us to show up as our buttoned up selves, um, which I think leads to addiction, which leads to suicidality, which leads to mental health craziness, you know, because we are so hellbent on keeping it all together when meanwhile, we're crumbling inside. At least that's been my experience of the world. I don't know. I mean, again. You're, you're, to me, Casey, you're pointing to something just really important. It, these are mostly ugh, unexamined, overarching cultural points or narratives. Things like knowing is so privileged over not knowing. Or certainty is so privileged over uncertainty. You know, you show up with your uncertainties and there's plenty of context where people just go, what's wrong with you, you know, or you, you better figure this out and get your shit together and then come back. But we privilege knowing, we privilege certainty. <clears throat> We're just oriented that way. All of us are, right? But to begin to welcome the inherent unknowing or the, the inherent uncertainties that are part of life that that's such a, a a gift to come into the reality of that and stop pretending all the other things. I mean, if I pull all of that down into a sort of leadership narrative, you know, one of the storylines has been good leaders know what to do all the time and they know exactly what to do and they never rest and they're completely tenacious. And, you know, for any of us that occupy some of those spaces and are able to do some of that, I'm going to say, yay. But that is not the, that is, you know, that is, to me, that is not the quality. It's not the only quality that we need. We need to be able to meet each other in the honesty of things not known, things not certain. And if I shift that into like a coronavirus world, I think it's one of the teachings that has showed up or one of the outcomes. How can any of us hold the same rigidity of commitment to knowing all things, predicting all things, controlling all things, when a teeny little virus can wipe out a global economy in a very short period of time, or a global cultural premise that we're in charge, or we're fully in charge. That's right. Uh, that just feels like, okay, hmm, that ain't so true anymore, is it? That's right. You can I just go back to one more thing too, Casey? Please, yeah. Because you've mentioned it, I I know that it's a reference to some of what's in this book, uh, and you've referenced it something about going to the floorboards, going to the closet. There are several pieces, both poems and a couple of reflective essays, where I've described some of that for me. Like I needed in in this in this even calling it a journey with despair sounds too cute. In this, whatever this is, this relationship with despair, coming to terms with despair, uh, there were so many times where I just felt like I need the lowest place I can find 
I need to like sleep on the floor tonight. It's, it's like I couldn't get low enough. And the closet piece of it is there were, there were times for me when I would sleep in the closet. Like I just somehow needed a confined space. Even my bedroom with its normal eight foot ceiling or whatever it was. And even the privacy that I had in my own bedroom. It's like, I, I just needed something more contained. And that was definitely part of the descent for me. Well, as someone else who has come out of a closet, Tennyson, I'm glad that we can uh, share that experience. <laughs> I, I'm joking, but I, I really, I wonder about, uh, you know, what advice would you give to any person who is sort of in the throes uh, of despair? What are what are some tips for for navigation? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to go to three things, and these might even contradict Beautiful. each other. But I think they're part of the you know part of the landscape they see. One is I think there's an unavoidably and needed interior and personal journey. Like, don't pop yourself out too quickly. Stay in it. Just try you know, try to become one of those folks who almost observes yourself from the balcony. Oh, I'm seeing that I'm afraid. I'm seeing that I'm scared. I'm seeing that I'm really hurt and wounded right now. To notice those feelings without needing to completely become them or be hijacked by them. Like, just notice them. Be a good noticer. It's a good Zen buddhist kind of thing, right? That's, that's the individual side of it. Dwell, I think, if I put it down into just a, a little more succinct way. D- just dwell in what is there. Uh, second thing, which feels like it might contradict some of that, is we need community. We do need people. It turns out, you know, we need some friends. I'm glad for everything from providence and grace to to friends who who won't let go who who yeah. come for me there are or family also in some way we need some layer of community to witness what we're in or to even just protect the space of where we're in i had one of my one of my uh just a a good friend and someone who's been really influential for me over the years she described a time in her life from long long ago when she was in utter despair. And she described how in her family system at the time, her mom was really worried. Like, we got to do something about her. Uh, we got to, we got to, you know, it was, a, it, it was fixing energy. It was loving energy, let's be clear, but it was fixing energy. And her dad, the way that she described it, just said, no, just, just let her be. She's okay. She was like staring out the window for hours and hours and days and days. No, just just let her be. I think we need some people like that that sort of protect the space yes. a little so that we can we can be in the dwelling, if you will. Or just to check on us. Like don't it's not answers. Just check on us every now and then. You know, a little a little lifeline, but a slack one. It's not a tight line as I see it. Uh so you know, what are the to-dos? There's a little bit of that. I think there's also some really just valuable thought processes. I don't know if I want to call it that consciousness processes, awareness or awakeness processes for any that have meditation habits. I think that's a dandy 
I need those for me. It's often 15, 20 minutes in the morning to just try to be quiet, just to let thoughts go. Uh, for me, the process of being in journaling, you know, having a form to be able to write unedited, it's not for anybody to see, uh, be able to have some practice that way is also a helpful thing. And then you can, you know, you can do all kinds of things that some good therapists were ha would have more to say than I would about having a dialogue with your, with many, these many aspects of yourselves, but a little bit of meditation practice, a little bit of, uh, of writing practice, expressive practice, and other physical things like, oh my gosh, do something physical, go for a walk, ride a bike, dance, do yoga, whatever those kinds of things are for you. I think something about the, the physicality in the way that it moves with our, our spirit and our emotional being is, uh, is super important. I love having a stationary bike. Boy, I've needed that bike many times. Um, you know, you've said a little bit about this, Tennyson, but, um, I think one of the things that, that is really important is good friends. You know, you, you said earlier in this conversation, um, that it was friends who really encouraged you to write this, right? To put this together. And so, um, for anyone who is, you know, maybe not in the throes of despair, but is wandering with somebody, you know, you, you've sort of laid out, you know, keep the line, let it slack. But what are some other ways in which we can be in relationship with one another? Yeah. Oh, good question, Casey. I, I got two things that come and love to see how these play in you. One is as principal, I, I think we do need people who see us. You know, my gosh, that might mean actually some of the people that we are seemingly closest to but don't see us aren't actually the ones that we need. Right. Like we, we need sometimes the people closest to us can't see actually, you know, I, I can feel that in me in relation to others and others in relation to me also, but I want to name the principle of being seen. And then uh, this is one of the stories that's in the book. And it turned out to be one of the most pivotal things for me help from a friend where when I was in the depression layer that felt suicidal for me, it was never an attempt. It wasn't ideation. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word. It, it was just like, it was in me, but I wasn't, I didn't have a plan is the short of it. Wasn't looking for a plan. This friend, he, he just said to me, of course, a part of you wants to die. And something in those words, like that layer of witness, Casey, sort of changed things. Like it's almost like it honored the fear in me or the, the, it, it reframed the honesty. Of course, a part of you wants to die. Of course, a part of you is dissatisfied with this life. Of course, a part of you is hurt. Of course, a part of you feels like, you know, I, I want to, I want to take it out of here. When he said that to me, naming that it was not the only part of me, you know, yeah, that wasn't a hundred percent. Of course you want to die hundred percent. Right. Something pivoted for me and I felt seen. I felt witnessed. I felt like somebody was speaking on it honestly to me instead of like, you know, lots of preventative kinds of things. 
Of course, a part of you wants to die. When I feel like that, those, those parts of us, those many aspects of, of us are legitimized, something felt massively liberating to me. So for those, you know, accompanying people in despair, I, I think there's an honesty, but also maybe maybe even naming a completeness. You know, of course, a part of you wants to die or a, of course, a part of you feels despair. And of course, a part of you wants to live yeah. and, and not yeah. be bullshitty with that. That's right. That's right. Or of course, a part of you feels invigorated and animated by, you know, by by something. We, we get kind of stuck in a rut. And I, I think that's the emotional pain and wounding where the rut gets so deep we can't even see outside of the rut. Sometimes I think our friends rename it for us to say, yeah, that's a, that's a big rut. And here's another, another little path over here, too. They remind us, you know. Right. Uh, I want to play with a question that I've heard you ask uh, people, colleagues. And myself, you know, something like, who are you today? Because what I think you're, I mean, you're speaking to this idea of like, of course you want to die. And of course, if you, of course, a piece of you wants to live. I think that that is beautiful. Uh, because I know for myself, when I am living in the descent, when I am at the, at the floorboards, it's hard for me to imagine anything but the space, <laughs> but the floorboards. But the closet, and it what it would mean it would mean so much to me. It is such a meaningful thing to say, and I wonder what tomorrow looks like. I know that you can only see this moment, but we, but an invitation to imagine what tomorrow could be that it doesn't have to be the same as today. Yeah, uh, yeah, super important, Casey. From what I can say, I mean, this is the realm of therapists and. And maybe a bit of spiritual direction also, you're involved in some of that. So something super important in there. I also feel like we deserve, ooh, I think we deserve the honesty of not false promises. Yeah, that's also. true. <laughs> in other words, you know, like, like yeah. it comes from a good place to say, tomorrow will be different. Or it doesn't have to be, for sure. Our encouragement, you know, any of that that we extend, that, that's so so loving and kind and well-intended. But truth is, I don't know if tomorrow will be different for you or not. But I know I'll stand with you. you know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, and I I, I want to speak to that. But yeah, I, I don't think that uh, what I was seeking to do there was offer false hope, but it is, but it is a... Um, that is a real problem in our society that we want to, we want to just move past the pain. And I hear that. Yeah. yeah I, I think that I pass the pain and get to the outcome. That's right. That's right. The glorious outcome or something. Yeah. You, you, you earn your stripes in some of these deep emotional places. Holy shit. Holy shit. You do. <laughs> so, um, early, you know, I think chapter one is shame and loss, if I'm correct. Tell me, tell me what you've learned about shame, Tennyson. You know, this is something that that will really speak to um, to me and to so many who listen. Shame is a powerful force in many of our beings, and so I I would be really interested to hear your thoughts on shame. Yeah, well, you've just named a 
super big part of it. Shame is such a powerful force. I mean, I, I'm in a question of where does any of that shame come from? And, you know, where does it, where does it grow? And it, it just, where does it come from? It comes from so many places. I, I, I almost have to connect it back to the experience again with a friend where in the space of a long road trip, just him and me and generally conversational talking, we're just talking with one another. One of the threads of conversation was, is there anything that you feel ashamed of that you haven't spoken? And for men to welcome the legitimacy of shame, just it, it, it felt so tension releasing. Because I, I, I think not just the culture of men, but, but contemporary culture, again, because it's pointed so much towards success and accomplishment and ascent. We, you know, we, we, we do some things that avoid the shame or the embarrassment. And, uh, you asked, you asked what I've learned. I, I feel like maybe the most simple thing is there's rich material in the shame. There's rich material in the release. And again, discovering like my shame might not be your shame, but we're humans. We probably have some shame. <laughs> And we can connect on the layer of, oh, yeah, you know, there's that. That's a good one. Here's some of the shame that I have. It, it, it feels, Casey, again, like it's speak the things that are seemingly not speakable. And there is some medicine in that. I think that that is like the biggest tea truth that I've heard. Speak that. Speak it. And, um, and watch what it ignites in others, right? We we really do need each other. I mean, we need each other to wander with us through through and in the descent. We need each other as mirrors. I mean, this there's something so rich about our interconnectedness that that I think we forget sometimes. You know, you Casey, you shared this with me before when we were talking a little bit about how you show up in a room. What I remember is you said something like, I just kind of come with who I am and I put my cards on the table. And that tells you a lot. Like some people reject you for that. Yeah. And some people just go, oh, thank God, finally. You know, there is something so like behind all of this, just the honesty of being unashamedly who you are. Like there's, there's, oodles of magic and medicine and 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 contagiousness in that thank god a real human in front of me now i get to be a real human too you know yeah <laughs> what, what do you think we're afraid of why why is it that so many people uh we're afraid to show up as our full selves or we're afraid to show up as that human yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's old stuff, Casey. It's deeply personal, of course, but I think it's old stuff. We're, we have fears of rejection. We have fears of not belonging. You know, we have fears of being dismissed. There's all of these sort of like deep communal, intimate things that 
we, we sure pack a lot of a lot of fear bags around on those things totally. don't we? And what's so fascinating is what we know. I mean, the science tells us what I, what we hear, you know, what I'm hearing from you is when you show up as your full self, you invite others to do so. I mean, certainly there are places where that's not safe, right? I mean, there are certainly people like I have to tell queer kids all the time, you don't have to share your truth with everyone. If it is not safe, do not share. Um, I mean, that that comes with some good discernment. But in general, I think that, I mean, at least in the relationships that I hold dear, it's it's because I chose to show up and be honest, and it was met with the same authenticity. Yeah, you know, short of like, shifting to an utterly perfect, emotionally honest world in a heartbeat. <laughs> I think this, the, the guidance to err on the side of sharing a little more, as opposed to defaulting to sharing nothing. Right. Yeah, it's. I think we do well to say, let's even if it's just teeny bit, you know, experiment with the teeny bit of more honesty, more more vulnerability, more authenticity. I, I mean, I I just get so excited about that, Casey, because then then the like the medium of connection becomes uh, this this sort of delicious authenticity with one another. Right. And you have more to talk about besides the baseball game or, or what you're watching on Netflix. Or whatever numbs you. Right. That's right. Um, there's have more choices than numbing. That's right. So, Tennyson, you know, as we're sitting here talking, I really would like to read one of your poems and have you respond to it. And even, even as I, I pull it open and I invite you to respond to what if, what if, you, you start by shaking your head and saying, oh, yeah. Again, that just speaks to who you are and what I love about you is that this, I could see the flood of emotions just fill you as you open to that page. So let me just read it and I'd love to hear your response. So this is What If, What If by Tennyson Wolf. What if, what if this life could be lived as connection to the infinite? What if, what if the infinite were found in but a thimble of experience? What if, what if those thimbles of experience were available anywhere? What if, what if anywhere changed everywhere? Life is but a dream calling for our waking to the infinite of the everyday. I love hearing you read it, Casey. (laughs) In this poem, like I can feel my heart just sort of drop down a bit, right? Yeah. In this poem, I I think this is in the chapter that's around uh, birth and new life. So it's it's coming up from despair. There are so many. There are four or five core hungers that I experience in this poem. It's almost like a bit of a you know, what if this were some form of rule of life kind of stuff? This poem represents some of my own, like just hunger for trying to find the essence of things that, that somehow resonate in the heart and belly. So in this poem, what if, what if I love asking the question, what if, what if just because it didn't, it just invokes an energy of alternative. What if, what if, you know, 
the infinite, I think I hope for an infinite. I think, you know, the way that I experience life is I, it's just like my belly can't argue against an infinite. It feels like there's so much and it feels like it has this, this unbounded quality to me, an infinite quality. And yet, as much as I love the vastness of that, pulling it down to a thimble, like, oh, I just, you know, there's such an attractive invitation to think that so much of the mystery or of the life force of the vitality is in the the candle in front of me or the person in front of me or the stone on the sidewalk in front of me. There's something about just, just finding the all of it in the any of it, which is that next paragraph also. What if these are available anywhere, just anywhere in front of us, you know, can we find the infinite in the flower? Can we find the infinite in the steering wheel of the car? Can we find the infinite in the poem that we read or the person that shows up surprisingly at church on a particular Sunday that we never thought would have come? And that just points to a, you know, an anywhere. I, I think I so hunger for this relationship of holding myself to the vastness yet being in the practice or the grace or the appreciation or the simplicity of just right, what's right here. You know, I don't know how to talk about the vastness of the entire universe or galaxy. I've always been like incredibly dumbfounded by the scale that is cosmic reality. Yeah. And then need to pull it down into just chopping some wood and carrying some water and, doing that with a heart that is somehow woven to the infinite. I mean, to me, this is just deeply, deeply spiritual being. So that poem is some of that hunger and some of that aha and some of that, you know, maybe just maybe this is how it works. Knowing that there are days when I can like find that groove so easily and other days where it's just like, I, I don't, I can't even find the trail that leads to any of that. Yeah. Thanks for picking that one. Oof. Of course. Well, I experienced the infinite in you, Tennyson Wolf. And I think that so many people would benefit from reading your book. And I know they'll benefit from hearing this conversation. So thank you for being with me today. All big thanks back at you, Casey. It's, it's such it's so fun to be in your company and to be in your wonder. And I feel like the last hour or so has just been this time of like delicious wonder together. Thank you. I feel the same. All right. Well, that will do it for us this week. If you enjoy Irenacast and would like to join the work we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenacast.com slash PayPal. We are committed to keeping the show free for listeners, but there are costs involved, uh, and your financial support helps. That's irenacast.com slash PayPal. Irenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. For more information on ways to partner with the show, please go to irenacast.com slash support.
Some of those ways include our Amazon affiliate link and, of course, our merch. Check out that uh, clergy drag shirt, Tennyson. You should totally check it out. You can also support the show by simply making sure you've subscribed to the show on whatever app you listen to your uh, podcast on, and then leave us a rating and or review. That'll do it for us this week. I'm Casey. Thanks for joining the conversation. 